0: Oh, Show Let's points. Go. Brought to oh. you by Acton's Quality Let's Roofing. Go. We've come to realize there is no such thing Let's as a construction go. season anymore. There's so much work to do that the projects have to get done, even when the weather is cold. And Chris is here with a project that is scheduled to close another part of I-5 and Everett this weekend.
1: Yeah, now this is not part of the Revive I-5 project in terms of dealing with the concrete, but it's going to close part of the freeway anyway. All northbound lanes of I-5 are going to be closed for several hours overnight Saturday and Sunday between Marine View Drive in Everett and 529 in Marysville. Workers need to repair the 12th Street Northeast Overpass. That's the first overpass you go under heading north out of Everett just past the Snohomish River. It was damaged in an accident more than a year ago
2: an excavator was being transported on the back of a truck it did strike this overpass it caused damage to it unfortunately That damage weakened the bridge to the point we had to reduce it to one lane with alternating traffic. That's the condition it's been in since September of 2021.
1: Now, this is a small overpass, but the Washington State Department of Transportation's Amy Moreno says it is vital for several nearby businesses.
2: There is a wildlife preserve in that area there's some agricultural lands out there and there is uh, Everett's Wastewater Treatment Plan out there, but it is a bridge that a few hundred cars utilize every day and it's important for us to keep access open. As
1: Amy had mentioned, only one of the lanes has been open on that overpass since the accident. Drivers alternating to get across the freeway. Moreno says workers need to replace a girder in the bridge to repair it and that girder is set to go in this weekend.
2: As you can imagine, that's, that's not a small thing and because of that, we do have to shut down I5 northbound for essentially the middle of the night but it's technically those
1: early morning hours. The northbound lanes expected to be closed around 11 p.m. both Saturday and Sunday nights. The closures should last about 5 hours each time. Marino says it might not seem like a big deal, but shutting down the freeway any time of the day or night is a big deal.
2: We always try to find a way to minimize the impacts to the traveling public. We recognize that if we have to shut down I5 northbound that affects our freight communities, that affects people who travel, you know, this is the busiest corridor in our states, the busiest corridor on the entire West Coast, and we don't take that lightly.
1: There will be a signed detour in place. It'll force all northbound drivers off of I-5 at Marine View Drive, and then send them to the Snohomish River Bridge on Highway 529. You'll get back on I-5 in Marysville. Contractor and the DOT watching the weather closely, Marino says the conditions need to be okay for the work to go ahead.
2: This work is weather-dependent, not in the sense that we have concrete that has to cure or anything like that this work is just weather dependent in that we're giving ourselves a very specific time frame to get this really important work done and we don't want crews working out there in heavy snow or in winds that are blowing
1: factor the conditions were so bad that this weather postponed last weekend this was supposed to happen last weekend uh but it didn't because the weather wasn't quite right right now the project is still a go but washed out will give me a heads up if anything changes again this is saturday night sunday night uh into the early morning hours the next day okay
3: Seattle's morning news. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien along with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan. You know, ever since my COVID diagnosis in April and the subsequent fatigue that I felt a couple months after, really got me curious about this long COVID you keep hearing about. And I know that a couple months of fatigue is nothing compared to what other individuals are suffering in the face of long COVID. So we have invited Dr. Jim Heath, president and professor at Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle, to tell us more about what the team has discovered about long COVID. Welcome, Dr. Heath.
4: Thank you, Colleen. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Can you first tell me uh, that, you know, what is your involvement in the study? Are you the main research group on long COVID?
4: Well, I direct the Pacific Northwest Consortium of a national program called Recover. And this consortium I direct involves University of Washington, Helen Chu's program, Jason Goldman at uh, Swedish, plus recruiting sites out in Spokane with Kathy Tuttle, up in Everett with George Diaz and down in um, L.A. actually, not exactly the Pacific Northwest, but with Peter Chen at Cedar sinai
3: mm, So you have a really robust team looking into this. What was it about long COVID that got your interest?
4: Well, right at the start of the pandemic, as I think everybody here recalls, it really hit Seattle first. Mm-hmm. Our goal at that time was to study patients when they were diagnosed at peak disease and then out when they recovered a few months later. And so we, of course, studied the nature of acute disease. We and many other groups around the world, I think we made some significant insights. But we also found around the end of 2020 or early 2021 that patients weren't recovering. At least a lot of patients were recovering. And we had a very rich data set. Now, between our program and then we collaborated with Helen Chu at UW, we had over 300 patients. Probably 30% of them or so had really had lingering chronic effects of the disease. And earlier this year, we published a paper in which we were able to identify a handful of factors that if you saw them in a patient right when they were diagnosed with COVID-19 infection, you could anticipate whether or not they would develop long COVID and what type of long COVID symptoms they would develop.
3: Interesting. So what were those pre-existing conditions, if I can call them that?
4: One of them was truly a pre-existing condition, which is type 2 diabetes. And largely that's because we just had the statistics to pull that out as a comorbidity. But we also found that COVID-19 infection reactivated latent viruses, in particular Epstein-Barr virus. And, and have,
3: Epstein-Barr, just for those who don't know, is, is mono.
4: Exactly. Yeah. And so almost all of us actually have Epstein-Barr virus in our body. But it's in a latent stage, meaning it's asleep. and most people, it doesn't wake up. But in, I don't know, about 20% of the patients in our study, it did wake up. And that happened whether or not you had serious acute COVID-19 or whether it was a relatively mild ailment. But when you are fighting the COVID-19 virus, that takes up a huge amount of your the attention of your immune system. By having these other factors that are elevated, distracting your immune system to some extent, they affect uh, what a physician might refer to as a patient's disease journey. Mm. So that you, you, as you pass through COVID-19 infection and, and recover, you recover to a different spot. You're just different. You know, you may have chronic fatigue. You may have memory loss and memory problems. And many patients, this is transient. Like what you described for yourself, you may have it for... A couple of months. But in some patients, it seems to go on for a long time. I've read stories
3: of some of these individuals are absolutely bankrupt because they've spent a year in long COVID. They can't continue their work because their performance has gone down due to the fatigue or or memory issues. And that's frightening that one virus could derail your entire life and there's nothing you can do about it but wait to recover.
4: No kidding. Yeah. And COVID-19 is not the first virus that has caused this kind of a long-term chronic disability in patients, but it's by far the biggest such impact. And and because so many people were infected with COVID-19, the numbers of patients that are suffering from long COVID is very large. These factors that we see right at diagnosis that anticipate long COVID, they're basically gone A couple months out after you've had acute disease. And so that puts a huge challenge on physicians or even physician scientists on trying to understand what are the triggers. You know, Mm -hmm. trying to even define Mm -hmm. long COVID right now in patients is a significant challenge to diagnose it. Once you have that definition will have good hypotheses for how to treat it. But it's a really hard problem because these signatures are gone, but the patients are still sick. Maybe there's a resident pocket of virus somewhere. Maybe there's ongoing cellular damage from the viral infection that's leading to chronic inflammation, which can cause you to burn lots of calories if you've got your immune system cranking away, and so you're fatigued. But how we address that clinically is still pretty mysterious. You know, right now the treatments for long COVID are extremely limited. It basically, you know, it's like occupational therapy. It's not they're not really treatments. You know, there's a lot of people trying to work on solutions to this, but it's a very, very tough problem. It's 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 sort of welcome to the world of chronic diseases. You know, when when you have an acute ailment or a broken bone or a cancer, we have a medical system that's really good at responding. When you have an ongoing condition like chronic fatigue, it's much more challenging to figure out how to how to address that.
3: Oh, well, and challenging to live with as well because there's not much sympathy out there for long COVID sufferers, since it is a, a fraction of cases. It's it's crazy making to go. I know that I used to be sharper, but now I my short term memory seems to be shot. But it feels like an excuse to blame it on, you know, it, it's crazy making for patients. And I, and I really sympathize, empathize with them on that.
4: I, I do as well. If, you know, one of your listeners is has a member of their family or themselves are suffering from long COVID, you know, empathy is actually pretty important here. I think a lot of these patients are feeling, I guess, the loneliness that you describe in terms of their symptoms are hard to describe. People don't have empathy for them it's challenging to get the medical system to respond when it's a vague condition that doesn't have a a crystal clear definition or a crystal clear treatment.
3: Dr. Jim Heath, he's the president and professor at Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle. Thank you so much for your knowledge. Thank you, Kelly. I can only see the tension mounting as you're trying to construct a home and your four-year-old's poking holes I think we posted
0: a picture on my uh, my, uh, commentary site. I'm glad you got some
3: granddaughter time. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Santa Claus isn't the only person who travels around with a vehicle full of toys. No, here's CBS's Caitlin O'Kane.
5: Every holiday season in Philadelphia, Patricia hands out stuffed animals not to kids, but to seniors. Her Christmas tradition started in 2009. She was an empty nester and felt
6: lonely. And I just got this idea in my head to call two nursing homes at random and ask if my mother and I could come and read "Twas the Night Before Christmas." So I gathered up all the stuffed animals that I had accumulated for my kids, who were now grown over the years, and I brought the stuffed animals with me. But when we went to gather them and take them back so we could go to the next nursing home, nobody wanted to give up their teddy bear or their stuffed animal in any way. That day, Patricia saw the power of a simple Christmas gift. Room. And on that particular December 1st day, it was drab. It was just a nursing home. And it was just a lot of elderly people sitting in wheelchairs, just kind of waiting and waiting for what? And all of a sudden, the whole room became alive with people jingling bells and holding Santa Clauses and everything. And they really didn't want to give them back because they thought we had given them a gift. To continue the tradition of giving, she put an ad
5: on Craigslist asking for gently used stuffed animals. In just over two years, she collected 11000 Spreading joy isn't just a holiday pastime for Patricia. We first met her as the happy flower lady. She passes out free flowers to anyone who needs a pick-me-up. And when the uplift heard the happy flower lady transforms into a local Mrs. Claus during the holidays, we wanted to know more.
6: I've always heard of the giver's high. I didn't know what that meant. But honestly, when you give, you really do get more back. Every morning, whether it's the flowers or the stuffed animals, I have a purpose. Patricia estimates she'll
5: collect about 250 stuffed animals a week during the holiday season. And even on Christmas Day, she'll fill up her car and drive to a nursing home to hand them out. Because just like Santa, her job of spreading joy never stops.
3: I love that, the giving high. (laughs)
0: Seven forty nine from the Gianusla Show. Here he is, G. Scott. I hear we've been roped into another competition here. Yeah. Maybe our show and your show. It's been, your show is winning somehow. Well, not at your back.
7: Not at the whole team's back. I know. Right now. And it's going to be different. I, I think that you get... You know, a good deal by coming in with you guys' show and then you get a little bit of me at a certain time anyway so you get the you know, best of both worlds
3: G shows his true heart when we try to have this competition where we're going to beat you and G's like no let's work together to raise this money yeah. 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 I like
5: that
3: he really is nice. a kumbaya work guy
7: together, work together like airplane seats but
3: have you seen the spread I mean we're at 550 and you guys are above a grand really? yes hmm. You're so popular. Uh,
0: yeah. I think the problem is that our show is a little too early for all but the hardiest listeners. And I think maybe the, maybe the key here is for when we actually deliver on the auction that we are allowed to start our show at 9. Ooh. And you guys can come in at 6.
3: Like a Freaky Friday
7: swap. Here's, yeah. here's the thing. People can't take me at 6. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, 9 o'clock is pushing it. Mm-hmm. 10 o'clock people, th- th- those folks, they love me more. But 6 o'clock in the morning, before a lot of people had that first cup of Joe, no. You do not <laughs> want to yeah. listen to me. I think you should try. You mean you're not a morning person? No, I'm a morning person. You are a morning That's person. the thing. But pe- people aren't used to, you know, some, some screaming and yelling and getting all emotional and wearing emotions on the sleeve. Yeah. They all need all the
3: that. soothing tones. They need yeah. You need that. I mean, I get emotional.
0: Yeah. lots of times. Oh yeah. With, oh, yeah. With,
3: I've really with, seen you get fired up lots of times. You, you,
0: when there's a, you know, when the when the express toll lanes rate goes up, you know, I'm right. I'm there right with Chris going do to do do.
1: so just like that, yeah. yeah. So, yeah you're, you so
0: you're so you're do 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 Like yeah. do you ever raise yeah. your voice, Dave? Okay. Occasionally I do. But only only when I'm very very angry and I know I'm right. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah.
3: Sometimes he'll tap his foot. Yeah. No, I do not <laughs> And that, that's kind of how he shows his impatience. I will
0: <laughs> tap my foot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't tap your foot while I'm in here, do you? Mm-hmm. No. Um, yeah. No, not, not at the moment. Actually, <laughs> actually, I had an ethical dilemma for you. What do yeah. you Because you're familiar with the Chicago airport, right? Now. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a McDonald's at gate C7, and then there's a Starbucks at gate C10. Okay. And so we're waiting for the plane. We have some time to kill. It's mm-hmm. two hours later. So um, uh, I get a, an iced coffee at the McDonald's, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no straw with it. Should I be allowed to go to the Starbucks at C10 where the straws are openly on display and just take one Mm -hmm. and stick it in the McDonald's drink? Yes. See, I did not do that. Instead, I went to the Starbucks, bought a similar drink and this time oh my gosh. and took two straws with it.
3: Dave, well, why
0: would yeah. you why'd you do that? Dave? Because I, I felt person. like I felt like it would be shoplifting to put a Starbucks straw mm-hmm. into a, a much cheaper McDonald's drink.
7: Well, let's talk about it, Dave. Um you've been doing this uh 40 plus years. Yes. In your 40 plus years, how many times have you reported on someone uh being stopped for shoplifting and stealing a straw? Uh never. Okay.
0: Never. But I, I don't. I didn't want my case to be the first one. There are cameras everywhere at that airport. Dave, do you really think that somebody
7: would see you on camera taking a straw, and they'd be like, "Go get that man"?
0: <laughs> no, but he would know. Yeah, that's true. I yeah. would know. It'd be on my permanent record somewhere. G.
7: <sighs> I want to take this time to ask
0: if you've ever stolen anything, but no. Nope, time to go. Oh,
3: oh man, what that. a juicy you, question too. You have, you
0: have nine o'clock. From helping kids in foster care get the extra help they need to graduate high school to making sure they have the tools they need to successfully transition into adulthood, Treehouse has been committed to youth in foster care for decades now. And part of that effort includes advocating on their behalf in Olympia. Car News Radio's Hannah Scott sat down with the man behind those
8: efforts. Daniel Lugo is manager of policy and government relations for Treehouse, where he and his team create a list of priorities Treehouse and the kids need from the legislature and a
9: strategy on how to get them. It's really important for Treehouse to be involved in this space because, you know, as an organization, we provide direct services to youth in foster care, which informs us as an organization how the foster care system could be improved at a legislative level. In addition to
8: previously working with the legislature, David brings a lot of personal experience to his work,
9: having been in the foster care system himself. I entered the foster care system when I was 17 years old, and that was after my siblings and I were taken away from our parents by Child Protective Services. And this was a really hard time to enter care because it was my last year in high school and entering care so late into my teenage years, you know, I didn't really have a stable upbringing. And so I didn't have any tangible plans for the future. And my siblings were placed in a different living situation than I was. It was a challenging time for David. To be quite honest, like my outlook for, you know, what my life was going to look like after entering foster care was very bleak. I felt very alone. Fortunately for him. I had some really great social workers and caseworkers who helped me look at foster care as like an opportunity to improve my life and get the support that I needed to succeed. And so my social workers and caseworkers, they kind of helped By figuring out a plan for me to be successful and um, ultimately I was able to get into the University of Washington after appealing a denial from them.
8: And he says having the opportunity to remain in extended foster care beyond his 18th birthday is what made all of
9: that possible. You know, not only did extended foster care help, you know, pay for the finances associated with going to college, uh, extended foster care also provided me with health care insurance so that I could received behavioral health support services to help process the trauma that I had gone through. And David says he
8: feels very blessed to be where he is today and wants to make sure other kids get those same
9: opportunities. With my experience in the foster care system, you know, I've decided to, to dedicate my life so that, you know, I can, I can improve the system and then with, you know, my voice of lived experience so that others can benefit from the system, uh, same as I did, but then also hopefully better. <laughs> David started working toward that dream before his work at Treehouse when he worked for
8: former House Speaker Frank Chop at the legislature.
9: The great thing about working for Representative Chop is that he valued the lived experience that I brought to the table. And so he had me directly shape policy for our office. So, for example, in 2021, I secured uh, $1.9 million for the state to revamp its independent living program for youth in foster care. And the independent living program teaches youth in foster care independent living skills so that when they transition from foster care into independence, that they can be, you know, stable in their independence. You know, my experience with the independent living program when I was in foster care was just painting mugs with other foster youth as like a bonding activity. And so there was a lot of room for improvement to to teach these youth more tangible skills. That $1.9 million was the first time that the state ever invested in the independent living program. Prior to that, it was just federally funded. And so it was underfunded and underutilized by youth and foster care. So that was a great opportunity that, that Representative Chop gave me. Since then? Most recently, I initiated a lifeline for independent living for youth in foster care, as well as other public systems of care to overcome any issue that could escalate into crisis. And so I secured $750,000. And that program is just getting up and running now. The idea. Help young people overcome any issue that could escalate into crisis. So, you know, for example, like a flat tire would potentially lead a young person, if they don't know how to change a flat tire or don't know how to ask somebody for help, that could lead to them losing their job, which could consequently end up, you know, in homelessness, right? And so the Lifeline for Independent Living is totally preventative, right? And so it, it aims to address those issues before it even escalates into something worse. The Treehouse mission
8: envisions and strives to create a world where every child who has experienced foster care has the opportunities and support they need to pursue their dreams and launch successfully into adulthood. Now, Treehouse is working toward that goal through a variety of programs it's created, such as Graduation Success, which pairs high school kids in foster care with education specialists that help tutor and mentor them, among other things, to get them to that diploma. David says another important program Treehouse offers is educational advocacy.
9: That helps young people while they're in school break down barriers that prevent their success. So ed advocacy will, you know, come in if a young person is struggling in school and work with school staff but then also the caregivers in that young person's life to figure out, you know, how do we Set up a path for success that really centers the young person and makes them feel comfortable going to school, makes them feel like they can succeed in school. And that really puts them on a good path, not a path towards homelessness or juvenile justice system, all that sort of stuff. It really sets young people up for success. Our programs at Treehouse really help young people in foster care avoid homelessness and and the criminal justice system. Without these supports, the statistics are grim. Nearly 25% of young adults will be arrested within one year of aging out of foster care. It's just so difficult for young people to succeed long-term if they've experienced foster care, just because being involved in the system itself is just so traumatic. It's invaluable, the support that we provide young people after they graduate and exit foster care. While Treehouse works every day to turn those numbers around, challenges remain. A big challenge with the foster care system is that young people in foster care just lack a sense of community around them, but then also caregivers are not getting the support that they need to, you know, really set up the young people in their care for success. And what's great is that DCYF, the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, who oversees foster care, we have a great partnership with them, and we regularly work with them to figure out, you know, what are the gaps in the foster care system? How can Treehouse, you know, provide services to fill those gaps? But then also how can Treehouse advocate at the legislative level to ask the legislature to, you know, to fund different initiatives, to pass policies so that things can be done differently to better meet the needs of foster youth. On top of all the
8: legislative work and building up of the treehouse programs, there was also holiday magic that with the help of all of our Cairo listeners has helped ensure every kid in foster care in Washington it's a meaningful gift for the holidays
9: that is such an amazing program because coming from the foster care system it's not easy waking up on christmas day with no presents under the christmas tree (laughs) it's just a horrible it's a sinking feeling what's great about the store at treehouse is that you know we let caregivers but then also youth in foster care you know pick out their presents for christmas so that they have something on christmas day
8: and david says if that's not enough to convince you
9: think about this an investment in treehouse is an investment in our future hannah scott cairo news radio
0: Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross.
3: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here.
0: And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.